Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one, fire. far horizons of the unknown come transcribed tales of new dimensions in time and space. These are stories of the future, adventures in which you'll live in a million could be years on a thousand maybe worlds. Parallel Eyes is your source for atypical analog role-playing. This episode is about an hour and ten minutes long. Razor claw, laser trail. I mean, we can't. Razor claw, laser trail. 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 Razor claw. Hey, welcome to Parallel Lives. I'm Wednesday Sophia. Today I'm joined by Hugh. Hi. Charles. Razor claw. And Carrie. Bleep blorp. Are your hosts, and we're talking today about Cosmic Patrol. <laughs> that's not just an accurate summary of Charles's feelings about the game. That's an actual noise coming out of Wednesday. Oh, throat. God, don't make me keep it in. <laughs> if we make it funny enough, she has to keep oh, it. Oh, no. Anyways, Cosmic Patrol is a cute little game made in 2011 by Matt Heert and Randall N. Bills. And Randall and Bills? N. Middle, oh. middle initial N. N. Oh. Randall's? N. Randall Norbert Bills. Yes. Something like that. We apologize, Randall and Bills, if your middle name is not Norbert. <laughs> and published by Catalyst Game Labs. And it sets you off on a journey unlike any you've ever experienced before, into the deepest realms of space and the pulpiest corners of Golden Age sci-fi. Yes, this game is dedicated, in fact, to all those artists and writers from sci-fi's Golden Age. They let their imaginations run free and took us along for the ride. So I think that's actually a fundamental misunderstanding of the creative process of a lot of Golden Age science fiction. Uh, but yeah. it's probably <laughs> right for the subgenre of Golden Age science fiction that this game is intending to ape. Which is sort of a Space Johnny Quest, Danger Will Robinson kind of situation. Flash Gordon would Flash be the Gordon. more normal one. Well, also, Danger Johnny Quest is an impressive <laughs> I did not of... say Danger Johnny Quest. <laughs> I said Johnny Quest, Wait, and then I said Danger, Danger Will Robinson. A whole new mashup <laughs> album of nothing but Danger Mouse and Johnny Quest. And you were reading Future Quest. It's the uh, the crossover between Space Ghost and Johnny Quest. And Our entire session went like this. Um, and Johnny Quest is a mashup of Johnny Five and Elf Quest, right? Uh, that's actually correct, yeah. Okay. It's a little five. Yeah, it's really interesting the way that they took that sort of independent comics feel and ironed it out into something as successful and mainstream as Johnny Quest. Initially, there were a lot more homosexual undertones, and a but, lot more you know, when they mainstreamed it... Yeah, also a lot more elves! <laughs> Wait, you're saying there were more homosexual undertones? Yo, dude, have you ever read ElfQuest? I mean, compared to Johnny Quest, though... The peenies do not hold back. Nope, the peenies are unrestrained. It's been, it's been a long time since I read ElfQuest. Like, I read ElfQuest, like, largely in elementary school. 
Likewise, actually. Oh, uh, yeah. Anyway, this is a middle school thing for me. As as you might have gotten from the flavor of our goofs, we may have ended up with something a little more Venture Brothers. We're no, sort of I an mean... Adventure Brothers zone, if you will. Um, yeah. Honestly, no, in terms Not... of where we ended up tonally, I think that's a bad and ugly portmanteau, but also a reasonably accurate description of our play experience. No, no that's really how it felt. And to be perfectly honest, I really kind of loved it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. It was a lovely time. No, I, I had a great time. Now I... if I can enter... But you also had a great time. I, I had a lovely time too, but the other Charles must also <laughs> creep in now. Because I'm of two minds on this, and this is probably I think I'm the most strong. Did you go through the group. did you go through the, the transporter <laughs> and, and come out wrong? Or, or the teleportal. Oh the teleportal. <laughs> um, or are you are you a clone? <laughs> are you going to join the Maquis? Oh, I, I don't even know where you've gone. Uh, sorry, don't worry about it. That's a deep space nine move. Oh, okay. <laughs> Did you have to leave your psychically connected twin back on Earth and he's just not happy about it? I don't... We, oh, wow. The insufficiency of my sci-fi knowledge is beginning to show through. Are you, uh, are so, you so trying to was... send SMS messages to your partner back at home? But uh, Surely SMS messages is an ATM that, machine. We had two Charles twins. We sent one off in a spaceship mm-hmm. at the speed of light and kept the other one on Earth. So the third one came back aged and bitter. We know that's but, the opposite of how that But was. they were <laughs> sending instant messages to each other for the entire time. Yes, they were dating. The thing to understand is that in the 50s, most science fiction writers were really excited about the possibility of ESP being a real thing. Like, by the mid-50s, Heinlein and a number of others had soured on it. Uh-huh. But, like, if you read stuff from the late 40s and early 50s and you see science fictional plot devices, like, using pairs of psychic twins as, like, ensemble communication oh, with yeah. interstellar starships, it was genuinely intended as, like, hard science fiction because they still thought that was a... A pretty as likely yet, outcome of the next century. Well, they were trying to be optimistic. I think I'm the most strongly divided, but I feel like a reasonably common opinion in the room after this is like, wow, that was a lot of fun. Wait, wait, Charles, what the Charles, heck was that system? Charles, Charles. Yeah? Just because you've had so many beers you can't stand doesn't mean you're divided <laughs> against yourself. <laughs> Look, there are certain jokes that work for me. For the record, Charles has had two beers. Tandem two. Well, working on a three. That's uh, one per Charles. The third beer is going into a pocket dimension. But yeah, so the game is towards the upper end of mechanical complexity for role-playing games we review on this podcast. And where I end up falling is that I think the system was 0% a benefit to the session, the effective content of this or the sort of narratives it wants to tell. And the kindest thing I can say about it is that, by and large, as we swept it out of the way, we could hear a tiny voice emanating from the rulebook saying, like, that's okay, you can do that. Just embrace your imagination, like Heinlein did. Whoops, falling off the table. And that's kind of how that went down. To uh, use more normal language, (laughs) it really does say a lot that at a certain point, we were doing a combat in this system, and Hugo's, do we want to just roll once for combat? And we went, yeah, yeah, that seems better. And maybe this is just a problem where we're people who just don't enjoy combat anymore. I mean, I can narrate gruesome violence all day, and it's dramatic and thrilling and exciting, I guess, but there's just a limit to how many dice I want to roll 
at this point in my life. And I say this having spent all day playing Pathfinder, so maybe I've just rolled too many dice. Maybe I was coming into this in the wrong frame of mind, and I should have loved the dice rolls. But the dice rolls are stupid and pointless, and effectively amount to picking a number out of a hat. That's exactly what I was going to say. I think that if there's a problem with this combat, it might be that they managed to find the exact bad middle point between combat is another fairly basic sort of conflict, all conflicts are the same, we have one conflict resolution mechanic, this is really about a story, and on the other side, games like Pathfinder or fully expressed D&D 3+, where it's like, no, there's also a combat miniatures game wrapped in here. And I think they managed to find the exact worst middle point between the two, where there's a, the whole combat role-based, combat-specific resolution mechanic, but the only thing to do on a combat turn is press the combat button, and then the system tells you if you combated good, and that's it. There's no strategic complexity or gameplay complexity to it that matters. There's just an unusual amount of number crunching. Have we mentioned that the system is GMless? Sort of. Sort, sort of. of. But in a lot of... It doesn't even commit to GMlessness. Ah. Which I think is fine. The thing about having a lot of combat and having sort of dungeony challenges, and we did in this case, is that usually a GM has in advance designed the dungeon, or even if they haven't done it in advance, is doing it on the fly. But with this shared narration, even though there is her scene, one person who is sort of the primary architect of the scene, if it's somebody else's turn to narrate and they say, oh, there's a fuse box here, then the main narrator for the scene has to just be like, oh yeah, sure, there's a fuse box there. It's worth noting before we get too deep into this podcast that this game has sort of preset scenarios that break up the storyline into scenes, and it might be fairer to call the scenes acts. Because they play out at some length, depending on how detailed you want to get in resolving them. So it's not seen in the same way as many of the storytelling games we've played, where scenes are very brief, like single character interactions. These scenes are potentially whole sort of adventure sequences in which you plumb the depths of an abandoned spaceship or do something like that. They they cover some real narrative and temporal ground. This game doesn't even commit itself to actual GMlessness because what it does is it has a lead narrator who is head narration person inside of a scene, which is more like an act, and then rotating turns of subordinate narration. It sort of feels like there are four people all assigned to do the same one and a half jobs, and I've never felt less sure what exactly my remit was as a narrator than I have in this nominally GM-less game. As an interesting aside, the game actually suggests that if your group is more comfortable with it, have one designated lead narrator. <laughs> Which you can call by any sort of title that moves you. It doesn't quite go that far. So, as you may gather, we have very mixed feelings about this game. The feelings are mixed because while as you can tell from what Charles has had to say and what everyone else has sort of begun to agree with. The game system itself is a little bit awful. The game we played was kind of delightful, and various other setting and genre elements that this game provides you are similarly delightful. Yeah, with a little bit of hammering out, I definitely feel like we could take our exact crew of slightly misfit Cosmic Patrol people. Through the teleportal to a better system and continue. (laughs) 
Sure, yeah, but I do think that we have set up sort of the foundation for like a Johnny Quest type show where... Carrie keeps saying Johnny Quest in spite of the fact that that's barely a Golden Age sci-fi standby because she really did play the Johnny Quest of the group and this appears to have altered her idea of what exactly this story was. Tom Swift. Yeah, Carrie, this is... There is an actual Golden Age sci-fi thing that Johnny Quest is a parody of and it's Tom Swift. Is it a parody? And his electric ray gun. And his electric ray gun and his atomic rocket. Yeah, it always sort of and got me that, like, even, even in third grade, which is when I was reading Tom Swift books, I was like, how do I feel about the fact that all of these are basically the main character's name and the cool toy he has that you wish you could? Look, the thing <laughs> is, when you're 10, you recognize the formula and you embrace the formula. It's the same reason that 10-year-olds love Power Rangers. You know how every episode is going to go. Even a 10-year-old understands. But that's what's satisfying about it. Because it tells you exactly what your expectations are, what you're waiting for as a viewer. I want you to hold on to that thought. Because I think there's uh, somewhere further down the line when we're a little bit further afield from mechanics. I want to talk about what there is that's fun, interesting, or worthwhile to reproduce about Golden Age sci-fi. And whether we succeeded at it and whether the system helps at all. Carrie, midway through today's session, and nodded to herself solemnly and said, Yes, all right, I came here with the uh, goal of figuring out how to be a little boy, and I have accomplished this. Hand rubbing, hand uh, Yeah, that's what that terrible sound is, everyone. <laughs> Which hopefully the microphone is picking up, but probably won't be very, like, so. radiogenic. <laughs> Awful. <laughs> so, why don't we talk about our space adventures? Yay! Um, we played this game using pre-generated characters provided by the rulebook, and... Cosmic Patrol, in general, provides you a sort of scenario, a, a crib sheet prompt, basically one page worth of information for all the high notes you should try to hit during your adventure and a rough story outline to proceed Very through. similar to a Durance sort of playbook, but friendly. I'd actually draw a couple of distinctions between the kind of material that this game provides and what many of these storytelling games that give you a sort of playset are focused on. More okay. than any of those games, this game actually gives you an outline of the plot events you need to move the story that's fair. through. Mm -hmm. The only thing we've played that's similar to that is actually the Chevalier Roach, mm -hmm. where it okay, gives you the, the outline of the semester and the events that you need to move through. If we acknowledge Chevalier Roach is similar, I think we end up also including Dulce. But, but you missed uh, Dulce. You were here here. Dulce does predate you. Yeah, no, it lists objectives, and the objectives are pretty much just an act structure. And, again, this is one of the ways which I go, like, how well does this produce Golden Age sci-fi? Because, like, there are ways in which they tell you kind of what the twists that you, the players, will lead and or subordinately narrate to one another. Kind of before you start, which changes the effect of a twist somewhat. Having said that, like, this actually also reminds me of Dulce in another way in that it it's was... It's all about a small child. Yeah, it's all about a small child. No, it was a delightful romp. No, where we had, like, decently realized characters who had fun and funny interactions with each other. And we had more goofs per minute. Many of them even in character in yep. this game. Yeah, and we were intentionally funny several times. Yes! And we were not unsuccessful. I mean, it, <laughs> we it helps that the pre-world characters, who which have their own bizarre mechanical issues called stat distributions that make no sense, and a theoretically really cool system called the, like, special skill system, where each character has a skill that's only theirs, that is almost as broken as it could be. But, like, in terms of being... Beautiful, pure expressions of archetypes getting you directly to what sort of characters you want to have on screen for this. I think there are only two female characters out of all of your though, so that's... There are 
There are there are no non-white there are human are male. Three? Okay. Yeah, there's the the Martian woman, oh, I, the I didn't intelligence yeah, agent, yeah, yeah. and the traitor. You're two right. two roads diverged in the Cosmic Patrol. And maybe that robot. And yeah. one was named "True Reproduction of the Source Material, Including the Manifest Whiteness and Maleness of the Genre," and the other was called "Trying to Reproduce Other Effects of the Source Material While Undercutting or Updating the Manifest Whiteness and Maleness of the Genre." And they, I think, pretty definitely picked the former. Path. So that's probably the fault of Matt Hirt, the original concept, game design, and also art direction, who gets the art direction credits, because as the art d- direction, or art director, you're the one who was probably responsible for hiring someone and not mentioning that maybe they should draw someone who isn't sort of a bombshell pinup blonde or strapping young jawed, yeah. Aryan man. Um, and that didn't have to be the case, so we're gonna ding you for it. Yeah. Ding. This came out in 2011. There have been a lot of supplemental stuff since then. Maybe they've improved. I have no idea. Part of what Charles is saying is that to keep it white and to keep it male... Bullshit. That's not part of Golden Age sci-fi. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I mean, but it is It is part of certain kinds of like Lost in Space style space odysseys. That's a product of it's what could get on American of those television. Swift books. It depends on where are we looking, because... Look, we can argue left and right about Heinlein's problems one way or the other, but having entirely white casts was not one of them. It's not one of Heinlein's There problems. were certainly Golden Age science fiction authors who thought that race was a social construct that was going to fade in the cool future where we lived in a wonderful and egalitarian this, society. This, this, gets Hell, Star very, does this gets very easy to defend if we pin the honor of Golden Age sci-fi on Heinlein, who is himself a weirdo of a sort that I think actually is treated fairly well by history. But I think that, like, hey, can we talk about how Edgar Rice Burroughs... Yeah. Sword, Sword and Planet starts out real, like, white men go to new world, new world metaphor for primitivism, or some sort of advancement, but also some sort of decay. Sometimes the decadent East is referenced. Like, no, if you just want to defend Heinlein, you can get away with it. Oh, no, but I... I think the broader-based criticism is... Corrected? I am defending the notion that it would not be genre-breaking to have mm. told your art designer to draw some of the characters mm. as not white men and women. Okay. It would not be out of keeping with the genre Golden Age sci-fi, which this takes pretty broadly, and I think <clears throat> includes things like Star Trek pretty clearly, Yeah, to have non-white characters in it. Suffice to say, Cosmic Troll, at least the base book here, pretty white. You can do better. Yep. Also, like, I don't think any force in the world is there to compel you to Look at, like, Cody Carragher, here depicted as a square-jawed white man with short hair and guns, and be like, excuse me, I meant Codalina Carragher. Uh, I meant Cody. Sorry. Phil just Cody. Fair enough. We can do whatever we want with the masters of imagination. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you can can change that (laughs) part in your head without much loss. If you don't know, the rulebook will tell you. <laughs> yeah, there is an inset about what a theremin is. So, like... Theremin is clearly, like, on a top ten thing of the most important things about this game and or the genre. It's probably theremin. It totally is, though. I don't think that's unreasonable. No, I don't think it's unreasonable at all. So, we set off the crew of the bold... Ausgang. SS Ausgang to... Figure out why anomalous number of ships had been vanishing in trans-Neptunian space, and found ourselves in a mess of 
cosmic in a sargasso horror, of space. In a sargasso of space. In a sargasso of, of space. space. Of space. Of space. So basically, we went to this sargasso under orders, and suddenly there were sort of horrible cosmic hands grasping at us. Yeah, the, the problem with the space sargasso was an excess of starship-sized hands. And this is what happens when no one person has narrative control over the game, and suddenly we move, like, one genre to the left. Yeah, now, but we all rolled with it. Yes, and, great. and rolled continually leftwards towards that genre called cosmic horror. But I think we totally stuck the landing. Like, that's one of my favorite things. So what happens, right, is we're beset by these horrible hands... There's a killbot raider that attacks us, sort of a reaver-style horrible action. Some of us get knocked into space, but it's a sargasso, so there's a fucking, like, derelict right there for us to ram up against and enter because we need to replace a part on our spaceship. Did you notice, Wednesday, that this is, like, a friendly spacefaring adventure time version? Exactly of the playbook for Dread that we played the first I time? I actually thought that exact thing. Yep! <laughs> Only we put some cosmic horror in here as well. So we enter it, and, you know, there's a horrible Flash Frozen hand that's, like, spewing white gook, courtesy of Hugh. I like... Uh, I'm not going to answer finish that sentence. <laughs> yeah, you no, like white blood. <laughs> it's established. I, a 13-year-old and a giant robot, stomp the hand, and we move on. It's like a medium-sized robot. If it still fits, like, between decks of a spaceship, is it really yeah, a giant true. robot? I, mean, I assume it's taller than any of us. Yeah, I mean, yeah, look, like if ten, this is to scale, this is, like... Like, a ten feet tall is not a giant robot. Okay, whatever. It's a, it's a large big, robot. All right. It's a big old robot. Look, Cosmic Patrol regulations state that to be a giant robot, you have to be at least 50 feet tall <laughs> and capable of independent long-distance retropropulsion. So independent long-distance retropropulsion? Well, yeah, it's the difference between a Gundam and a mobile suit. Oh, okay. Fair enough. The dis- difference between Gundams and mobile suits. Well, one of them is made of Gundamium. Yeah, Charles. Please. <laughs> I was always very confused because I assumed mobile suit Gundam was like Martian successor Nadesco. Sort of the first two words describing the third. Now you're telling me this is not it, and and what even is the order of succession on Mars, you? Yeah, space battleship Yamato? It's really a Yamato hard... is a country. <laughs> it's hard to overemphasize the degree to which this game may have actually been a Martian successor Nadesco simulator. <laughs> Oh, I've never uh, seen Martian Hunter uh, Nadesco. That was... <laughs> what? Martian successor Nadesco Mar- is Mar- a delight. Mar- it's me. The- Martian Hunter Nadesco. <laughs> Look, I said the N. I did say Hunter, though. I admit this. Martian I, successor Nadesco is a delight. <laughs> and the only anime that I will ever argue is objectively better dubbed than subbed. Woo, girl! <laughs> Next thing you'll be telling me that Onizuka was only a moderately decent teacher. <laughs> You're so right. <laughs> you could have concentrated a little bit better on some subjects. So this is what our whole game was like. We there's, had a one, there's, there's one other trinomial space anime show that I'm trying to think of, and I'm not what, sure. Other than Great Teacher, Galaxy Asuka? Express 999. Uh, <laughs> That's pretty trinomial. Captain Harlow. Yeah. Wait. I think it was. Uh, yeah. I think it is Captain. Is it Harlock? I can't remember. It's Harlock. 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 Isn't Dread Pirate? Dread Pirates? So something Pirate. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, there's definitely a some, something Pirate somebody or other. Yeah. So we get into this spaceship, <laughs> and there's some scary shit going on. 
It's going to say some scary shit going on. That Charles, our captain, has like set his scanner to only tell how shootable or fuckable something is, or how smart it is. And we might pause here for a little bit of a moment to talk about characters. characters. Yeah. <laughs> because that's a joke with no prior lead in. Charles was playing Zap Brannigan. Charles was playing Zap Brannigan. Charles was playing Zap Brannigan crossed with like certain fandom interpretations of Captain Kirk. You're pretty clearly some kind of Kirk analog. And I'm the Scotty to your Kirk. Yeah, but like um, really hard drinking and crabby. You're like Scotty with cirrhosis. Yeah, you're like mean Scotty. Yeah. So, it's interesting sort of how this game gets at what it wants its pre-roll characters to look like. It gives you, you know, name, homeworld, age, rank, uh, and then it gives you a sequence of tags for them, and I'm not totally sure what this system... It, it likes providing you tags for things. Scenarios have tags, characters have tags. We need to get back to the scenarios thing here because there's a real problem with the overlap between the objectives and the scene descriptions. <sighs> That's a fact. But, like, the character that it gives... Cody Carragher, rocket ship captain, defines him as nothing showcases the brazen attitude of the Cosmic Patrol more than its captains, calling them universally brash and cocky. And then it gives you, again, maybe one of my favorite things I've ever had to work with in a, like, pre-rolled character for a system, which is cues, which the scenarios also have, and their exact difference, they're a little close. But on characters, they're just parts of lines of dialogue for you to use in your narration. Which also sort of direct you to the kinds of action and the kinds of thought process that your character has. Also dispositions. Which are different from cues. I mean, they're a little bit. At some point, the rulebook even refers to them as cues. But, like... That's okay. I mean, the difference is that, like, my dispositions are things like action now, contemplate later, and brave but impulsive, which are sort of character descriptors, where my cues are things like, trust me, I know what I'm doing, command voice, tactics schmactics, or bullseye. My engineer character, who's not really much of a fighter, had a pretty good disposition that I didn't get a chance to highlight of his game, but it was mostly harmless. <laughs> I did see that there was a mostly harmless. Unfortunately, it actually occurs on a couple of different character sheets, I think. Oh, okay. They wanted you to know they got to that joke. Yeah. Your disposition is your climate. The cues are the weather. That's fine. Yeah, I like that. Yeah. Thumbs up for cues as a system. I, I think in all things in this game, if you just accept that the game is giving you more material than you're going to use in any one instantiation of this character, of this scenario... I think you're just supposed to pick the things that speak to you and run with them. Hey, I used all my cues but one. Oh, nice. I think the character cues are easier because, at least in the pre-generated characters, they're very consistent with Mm -hmm. each other. Yeah. Oh, pre-generated. That's a better word than (laughs) pre-rolled. I've been Um, struggling with that all day. Yeah, so the thing about cues is they were a lot of fun on their pre-generated characters. Pre-regenerated. Pre-regenerated. Pre-regenerated characters. Razor, claw, laser, drill. Razor, claw, laser, drill. Razor, claw, laser, drill. Wham. All right, so they were a lot of fun in their pre-gen stuff. I think they might have been a little bit more difficult were we creating characters right there. Yes, absolutely. Um, that said, like, these were great. It was really fun just to drop in cues and, like, feel awesome. It gave the entire proceeding a sort of goofy sci-fi action movie feel because people are fairly constantly saying, you know, super tropey, super catchphrasy, super... Words? Like, Menus, ray guns. Yeah, like... Watching a Perlman squirm? Pleasure. I'll get my wrench. It's a drilling a laser, duh. 
I'm so glad he didn't use that voice during the playthrough. Plus one for not using that voice. And this is where I kind of want to jump to Charles's question about, like, is this actually simulating Golden Age sci-fi? Yeah, okay, I think we can do that here. Like... Go for it. This, at least playing with these pre-generated characters, it's legging it on a bit thick. I say as someone who's read a decent amount of Golden Age sci-fi and always found that it more or less took itself fairly seriously. That's which one of the this game I isn't noticed. doing. Yeah, no, it's a, you're doing Golden Age sci-fi prime, you're doing Golden Age sci-fi in like really quite large scare quotes. And this is why Spoof. I am fairly yeah. consistently jumping to things like Lost in Space and Johnny Quest is because I think that this hits those nails right on the head. I, yeah. I don't take Star Trek very seriously. Also falls in that. Yeah, at least kind of... the original series. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, not even to mention Joe Carter of Mars. <laughs> That's another inside joke we created during this game. Uh, I have I have an unusually high number of inside jokes written down on here. Yep, I think a lot of them were really good. What was how did how did we describe the entirety of the rule system? Uh, whose die is it anyway? <laughs> if we were not already the parallel lines podcast, I would float that as a name. Oh God! <laughs> Alas, we have so much brand recognition. We can't all just throw that. Yeah, away for we have nearly 150 likes on Facebook. Oh my god, that's more than I thought. <laughs> that's less than the number of friends any one person among our hosts has on Facebook. So, like, look. Woo! So I want to continue to talk about our story, because it's not even very long. So basically, we discover that the problem in this Sargasso is that it is all just a big old, like, dermoid cyst of the universe. So it's basically like a 2001-style star child that has started to form but it's doing it very poorly. So it's all hands and flesh and teeth. Space time anomalies. Space time anomalies. I have to be told that I need to stay in the robot. You need to stay in the robot. And not try to reproduce with the hands, which really confuses me because I'm 13. Did the fabled reverse Evangelion. Yes, the fabled reverse Evangelion. <laughs> we pulled it off, folks. <laughs> yeah, we nailed it. Stay in the robot, Shinji. Definitely don't merge with the universe. <laughs> we Content at- warning, spoilers for Evangelion. <laughs> like at, a, at a certain point, we shift into cosmic horror, and then back out. Because the way that we get out of that horrible gripping hands is that I tickle them. And I just, I really am in love with that. And then we run, and like, it's all goofy air tunnels, so that I, because I've had to get out of my robot, even though I've been warned against it, like, I don't have a spacesuit on, and, you know, we have to rescue me. No, we have to leap between airlocks to yeah. safety while the traitor Scotty makes her does escape in this Not ship. Scotty yeah. does some frantic engineering, and then we pull a Battlestar Galactica, and then yeah. we home in at least sort of science fiction television. Our safe... It's like our neighbor's house. It's when, when you're a kid and your parents aren't home after school, they leave you at the neighbor's house. The neighbor's house is science fiction television. Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, and I just really enjoyed that structure where we dipped into another genre and then ricocheted back out. Yeah, I think it went pretty well. Yeah, yeah. no, it, like, like we all said, it was a lovely time. Whether or not the system helped us get there is the point of discussion. So how close do we think we ended up getting to Golden Age sci-fi proper? I mean, when I think Golden Age sci-fi, I know that I'm wrong, but I do think of those sort of goofball, cheesy 50s TV shows. And I think we basically nailed that. Yeah, like that or like one of the later old-time radio show kind of things. The canonical inhabitants of Mars in this are the Red Amazons, who are axe wielders. The book it feels like it spends about ten pages telling you that axes are valid. They're a major point of the, like, 
opening fluff story and they get their own section under weaponry talking about how axes are just fine even though it's space i think if you were playing with characters you rolled well wrote yourself and weren't relying on the like fairly cheesy obviously fun and approachable but cheesy set of cues that they give you you could hit a more serious version of the same genre. You could land back somewhere in your, probably not foundation, but maybe somewhere in your Heinlein Juvenile, which, while they feature lots of very genre things, are at heart earnest and serious novels with characters who are having struggles that are supposed to be genuine rather than bombast and cartoon. Yeah, and like if we're asking if we've hit a genre, which in here we're describing as including both Foundation and Flash Gordon, I think that's pretty wide. I think we I think we got in there, sure. <laughs> yeah. No, fair enough. That is a broad side of a barn to hit. So there's maybe a problem of whether this game is going to hit your ideal version of golden age science fiction and partially that'll be what you bring into it we gravitated towards uh, honestly an end of episode of venture brothers that's what it felt like something that took golden age science fiction processed it through another 50 years of popular culture a almost twee sense of parody and painful self-awareness and a bent for comedy and and some evangelian references and yeah. and a lot of our own personal favorite things yeah. and it, it, the, the descent into body horror that i feel like i can just be counted on exit pursued by a giant space hand yeah yeah i think it was mostly missing genre wise for me which is i guess is part of what my mental model of this kind of sci-fi looks like is lightsabers uh, yeah, no, exactly. The golden age sci-fi, Star Wars. Still so weird. Don't even start me on how weird it is that Star Wars happened as late as it did. It's very strange. Base opera was dead. It wasn't still happening. But I think of twist and revelation, and particularly if that twist or revelation is related to some piece of speculative society shaping or related to some particular, like, philosophical issue that the author has decided to work out by means of having an entire alien planet devoted to, like, dramatizing its central contradictions and questions. I think that's something that this game could accommodate, but I think it's worth noting the sort of hard-coded, built-in material, the setting, the concept of the Cosmic Patrol, the universe that it gives you, is more Flash Gordon or episode of Star Trek than it is high-concept literary science fiction novel. So you could have that kind of speculative fiction, but you have to write it in in the same way that an episode of TOS does, where it's a very contrived situation that you sort of shove the characters into and then pull them out of. It's more comic book or television show than actual Golden Age science fiction novel. So we've talked a lot about how the system is bad and we do not like it. So let's talk about what actually failed. We've really only just said like, hey, it's bad. I want to open on what I think is really great about it. I really love the cues. I really love the dispositions. I quite like tags. I think that all of those are like pretty excellent ways to build a character very quickly and or to figure out how to play a character. Cues are delightful. Like, I did definitely find myself... Like, when something would happen, I would look at my cues, and I'd be like, okay, how am I supposed to react to this? Mm. And if I couldn't find something, I'd be like, okay, what's in line with these cues? 
And I thought that was super helpful. Yeah, more than any other game we've played, I don't think any of us had a problem sitting down, looking at these character sheets, and knowing how to play the character without any struggle. There were some difficulties that I had because I was playing a 13-year-old boy and probably like a fairly innocent one at that. So if you guys are banding about some adult humor or if we have a situation that's genuinely frightening or serious, I wasn't totally sure how I was supposed to react to that. But like, but... It didn't seem like you were struggling with that particularly. So. Oh, yeah, I like you mostly found your way through. I tried. Sometimes I just sort of fell silent and was like, what are my cues telling me? Hmm. All right. Carrie's provided us the bread on the compliment sandwich. Let's <coughs> fucking dagwood the middle of this. I also like luck. Every character has a luck stat, and if you roll... Save it. We need the second piece of bread later. Okay, fine. All right. No, no, no. Let's, let's, no let's... That's all right, because I hate luck. It's a stupid idea. <laughs> no, I. you know why I like luck? I like luck because this system is bombastic and ridiculous. I do agree that nobody's luck should go over about five. I, so basically what happens, you're always getting to roll two dice, and you have one number that is like arbitrary assigned to you that is your luck number. And if you roll that on either of your dice, you automatically succeed. No, just on your skill die. Oh, oh, oh weird. Your skill or combat die. Yeah. The first time I played this game... Everyone assumed that too, but oh. no, it specifically says in the rule book on your skill die, regardless of the overall roll. So if your luck is higher than your die size, yeah, it just doesn't work. Yeah, and I think that, that is definitely a bummer. But I do. I mean, or I can do. only get lucky at certain types of roll. And if you can, if you generate your character at random, your luck is just determined at random. There's no trade-off at character creation where you get more or less lucky. It's just picked randomly. No, which it's intrinsically imbalanced. No, which I don't like at all. But I do like the idea, especially in a system that is as, like, basically friendly and friendly to the characters as this wants to be, of there being a mechanic that is just like, good job, auto success. You, you rolled your lucky number. Caveat, I perfectly well understand that some people like old school D&D or systems where there are things that are intrinsically unfair to the characters determined at random. This isn't that game. This is a script for an improv comedy routine. It's so not remotely crunchy and so not simulationist a game that I'm not interested in a measure of whether your character is lucky or not in the universe. I want lucky events to happen at random with equal probability for all characters. Hmm. Having a luck value that some characters are just never gonna be able to roll is just objectively a broken thing in this game. It runs contrary to the prima facie obvious purpose of a game like this. Ooh. Whereas I think that because it is such a small effect on the system, if it happens, it's because you lucked out. That I think that degree of randomness and oddity and chaos thrown into the system matches the goals it has for what improv results in a way that I think the luck system serves. I also think that the luck system serves a sort of like, the red shirts are going to get killed, Captain Kirk is never going to get killed. And I don't know if that's really built in, but let's look at our characters. I'm a little boy. My luck is one. Charles is the brash captain. His luck is three. You're a fine person, but you're the crabby engineer. Your luck is five. Wednesday is a straight traitor. Her luck is six. I should get lucky more often because I'm a little boy and the universe should be kindest to me. Charles should get lucky quite frequently because he's the hero and the universe should be kind to him. What? But, but mathematically, that's not how that works. One 
three, five, and six are all equally likely to come up on every single roll. We are all equally lucky. As opposed to that one poor sap in the pile of character sheets over there who has a luck of 11, who is basically never going to be lucky at all unless he's rolling his best stat. Given that, for character creation of your own, what you need to do is roll a d12 and that becomes your luck stat. I think that is ridiculous. However, I think that the luck stat does have some potential like thematic things that you can assign to it, where like, yes, the child gets lucky more often, the hero gets lucky more often, the traitor gets lucky less often. Especially because the child, I, my, my dice are d12, d10, and d4s. So I'm going to roll ones more often because I'm going to be rolling like my shitty combat and charisma stats because I'm a fucking child. Yeah. It's also worth noting that I believe the pre-generated characters are not made strictly according to the character creation rules. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Their die stat lines are not balanced the same way as regular characters. And so there's been some tweaking to make them seem more thematically appropriate. But that brings me to the other way, which the stat lines are completely the fuck broken and the skill system in this game is just kind of poorly thought out. But I'll let Charles talk about it because it's rare, but someone else hates this game's mechanics more than I do. Wait, may I have a final word on luck? I don't think it's done perfectly in this game, but this is the kind of mechanic that were I designing a game of my own, I would think about implementing because I think that there's a cool space there for the universe to be kinder to some characters than others. Almost like some sort of regular luck stat. I don't know. Not this version of this, but I, I see the direction this could go in that I could like more than this. Let's talk about the cruelest and weirdest cut. So characters get four extremely basic stats, brawn, brains, charisma, combat, that they roll in brawny situations, brainy situations, charismatic situations, or any kind of fighting, hand-to-hand, laser rifle, or ship-to-ship combat. I'll use the combat stat, which, fine, we're not a simulationist game. It's weird that everyone who's good at swinging an axe is also a truly great interstellar tactician, but we roll with that. And every character has one more stat, and it varies. It is their special skill. In the case of me, the captain, I was a raygun pistol expert. And the way the rules have it is when you're doing a check that could reasonably use that skill, instead of using whatever skill die you would normally use, you use your special skill. And that then seems something, reasonable. And that sounds reasonable. No, on its surface, that sounds like an okay... Yeah, everyone has a special thing they're good at. buh 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 We have some outliers and some weird ones. So the problem arises because special skills are always D10s. Mm-hmm. However, it's perfectly possible to have a d12 in your stat line. Like my character, the engineer, for example, with a brains die of 12. So when I use my special skill, rocket ship maintenance, I get worse. You, the engineer, are worse at one kind of brain task, and it is rocket ship maintenance. And I have a similar situation where for some reason, I'm I'm not sure why, my special stat is intuition, but my brains are a d12. This is just such a strange choice that this harms my faith in this game a little bit, because unless we've somehow, please, like, drag us in the comments and tell us that we misread this rulebook, but we we double-checked this one. Triple-checked. Yeah, Yeah. because at first we were like, oh, okay, so if I'm doing a check, if I'm doing a brain check, but I'm using my intuition, I get to roll the d12 and the d10. Okay, cool, that makes it, wait a second. Really? You replace it? Really? And what's funnier, this is two games I've played where the party, without my prompting, just assumed that that was how it was supposed to work, that you rolled the skill in addition to your stat, 
Because that would, like, make sense or something. That would be a pretty powerful buff for each character at one specific thing they're good at. In keeping with the flavor and fiction of this universe where your engineer, Scotty, can Mm -hmm. fix anything and your scientist can science anything and your captain can shoot or seduce anything and... Yeah, and the special skills are often, I think, pretty limited and pretty tied to the character, plus or minus intuition. I mean, though you'll also notice a thing that we've been talking about, we're like, well, wow, the, the only brain task I'm bad at is rocket ship maintenance. And that's because there's it's pretty hard to create a skill that doesn't shadow one of the other major stats, because the other major stats are extremely broad, which, again, probably right for a system that is this light on rules. But it's clear there is a special case that you're supposed to be extra good at. But that's just not how math works. And it's like really super basic math. You know, this isn't my life with Master, where over the course of the game you start to realize, oh, wait a second, this is never going to add up. Like, no, 10 is smaller than 12. Also, minor oversight, we were unable to figure out what happens if... Okay, so it it uses basically like a difficulty check opposed roles system. But first of all, it does something that I think I most recently encountered. I think, I'm sure it's in one of the games that we played. But when I went looking for another example of a game that gave you a difficulty class, but what it did was you roll the difficulty class number, and then you roll your skill number, and you see which of those is higher. I most recently remember like Fatal. Fatal does this, where the exact difficulty of whatever you're testing against varies. Yeah, I mean, from a pure statistics point of view, that's not a problem. What you now have is the problem of given two distributions, what are the odds that a number picked from one will be greater than another, which can be tailored to give sort of roughly the same ultimate distribution of success and failure as a difficulty check against fixed or varying target number, but it's a lot harder to conceptualize. Also, I think the canonical case for this is a game called Alternity, which was a science fiction role-playing game that TSR made after AD&D, but before becoming part of Wizards of the Coast does this. That's what these dice look like to me. Mm. Uh, it rolls, you roll against a d20, just like mm. this game. I wandered off on the, the weirdness that is like rolled difficulty check numbers, which again, like combinatorically not difficult, but fairly weird, especially at moments when like the giant marauding space ogre rolls its one, and so no matter how poorly you shot, you killed it. Like, it's weird. But I'm not sure, and again, we looked, that the rules address what happens if you tie the difficulty check number. Nope. They really appear not to say. Uh, Maybe Uh, I'm just blind, but I, I have read it two or three times. There's no heading, no, in case of a tie. It just says you roll this versus this. Yeah, and it's up, it's up to you to decide what happens next. Uh, that's in the spirit of the rest of the game, and so, you know, it was not <laughs> a problem for us to keep playing with that, but, boy, that's not in the rules. In its defense, it knows. Like, the rules themselves are like, yeah, we were kind of vague on some points where other things would be explicit, there's no movement stat for combat, like, this is a storytelling game first, it's just the most mechanically heavy story game system I've ever seen, I don't know. Actually, you know what? Let's talk about something else that pulls from more story-like systems, too. Let's talk not fate points, plot points, I believe? Plot points, Plot yeah. points. Which made me laugh, because if you, like, drop them on the ground, that's like a drop plot point. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Um, <clears throat> so, plot points are an interesting idea. The way we've already touched on briefly, the way that GMing works is that you have one person who's the lead GM, and you go around in a circle, and you switch people who are narrating different parts of the scene, and they can each add complications, and that's all fine more or less although we did lose track of that somewhat as we played but 
the way that you're supposed to manage this is through plot points. Everyone starts with a couple of them. When you want to interrupt someone, when you want to add a detail, when you want to... Um, and this is where we get weird. Uh, for some reason, re-roll a die or something like that? Mm, just uh, add a modifier. You, you can add a modifier. How much? <laughs> like, like it, it, that's, one of the, that's literally all the rules tell you. They're like, yeah, use yeah, so a plot point to add a modifier to a roll. They're like... Something like inspiration, which you know you'd use uh, as your kind of like fudgy thing in a, I would say I don't know a normal role playing game, a different role playing game where you know I've been listening to a lot of the Avengers Zone, so I know about uh, what uh, giving advantage on rolls means. Um, you could use a point of inspiration for that or whatever. But these ones, it always felt like they were more getting in the way of the game than they were helping it move along, um, at least to me. Like, I had to look down and remember, like, okay, I've got these three plot points, and I guess Hugh is the one jamming right now, so if I want to say something, I have to give him a plot point, and then either I can add something, or maybe it'll suddenly switch over to my turn for a bit, because I want to do something. And, like, I'm not saying that every very loose story game we've played is perfect compared to this, necessarily. We have different thoughts on Ribbon Drive and Dulce and Fiasco, etc., but then either I know whose turn it is, or we can just talk and it's fine. And we don't have to have this weird thing in the middle where like, we can sort of switch turns and do other stuff and have to remember mechanically how we're doing it. It probably would have been easier if we had had like a talking stick, if we had had some sort of physical turn marker that we passed around. Yeah, we could have made whose turn it was clearer, but that feels like enabling deviant behavior. That feels like inconveniencing ourselves so that we can try and make this weird, like, if you want to talk and narrate out of turn, you've got to expend a resource system go. So when we eventually play something that's actually based on fate and we talk about how the fate point economy and fate works and how it's subtly different from this in a couple of ways that make it an actual economy where there's a back and forth flow of resources that are tied to narrative control from the players to the GM and back, it'll be clear why this system is insufficient. Mm-hmm. Just Do they, they, they file a, off one too many knobs? They filed off one too many knobs. The infinite pool of plot points that the lead narrator has and the restrictions on how you spend them for the lead narrator in this game break something that fundamentally works because it is a back and forth mm-hmm. and because there's no f- fixed narrator it just doesn't work because you're not exchanging anything okay i'll digress into fate in fate i can give you a plot point or a fate point because i did something bad to you i made something bad happen for your character mm-hmm. in this game you give me a plot point potentially to make something bad happen for your character and everybody's motivations are every which way and since there's no fixed role and since we're doing this like an improv game the trying to graft a fate point style economy onto it just kind of dies halfway up the hill. Mm -hmm. The positive thing that I'll say about plot points is that at the very end of the game, I was like, okay, the game is heading towards an end. You know, we know where we're going. We know how we're going to get there. And the only thing between us and that is roles. So I guess it's time to divest myself of all my plot points and make this a truly miraculous escape. And I thought that that felt like pretty good and pretty flavorful. I have two points. The first is, I actually think this game did something for us. I think we are not giving it enough credit in terms of the wild and crazy, back and forth, goof heavy, 
whose turn is it to narrate? Like, I don't know, maybe it was your turn, but I have something I want to say. That seems to be very much play as intended. The game designers maybe imagined us trading plot tokens back and forth across the table more than we actually did, but I think we actually got pretty close to the intended end result in terms of the feel of how we were playing the game at our table. We were all very engaged, we were doing a lot of stuff, everybody contributed a lot, and we weren't a stickler for procedure. And I guess I just credit like 95% of that to the queue system and not to anything else that the mechanics are doing. I see what you're saying. I think it's in the spirit of how the game wants you to play. If you look at what the plot point mechanics are supposed to allow you to do, it's basically that. It's supposed to let you jump in whenever you have a good idea. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot of fun. And that okay. works in this kind of weird, collaborative, like, co-GM'd game. Second, this game actually ends well. As you brought up, this weird, we're just going to dump all these plot points and bring the story to a close, this game doesn't taper off into nothingness, and that's because the playsets give you an outline of what's supposed to happen. You know when you're reached the climax of the story, mm -hmm. and you know when you're still in the rising action. And playing a storytelling game with that already in mind is basically the how should we do this better that we've come up with for like half of the games yeah. we've played. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, and this game gives it to you and tells you that in advance, and I think that's good, that's a strength. Yay. And we've already touched very briefly on it, but to the game's credit, while we compared the um, what are the mission briefings here unfavorably somewhat to Fiasco's playsets, like the three scenes that it gave us, they were all fairly basic, and while we knew it was happening, we had one, an obstacle in the wild nature of the Sargasso, two, we went inside a derelict vessel and had to find a thing, and then three, we had to escape. Like, we had a lot of detail to that, so it didn't feel like soulless or like we were just going through the motions. We made the game our own, and I think that worked out pretty well. Yeah, this is a really odd game for me because, you know, there are two things about it. There is the fluff and the crunch. And overall, I think the crunch is a pretty big failure. Like, there are certain things about the crunch that I like, but overall, I don't think that the crunch does very well. Overall, the crunch needs a lot of improvements. The fluff? The fluff is fabulous. All of the characters are, you know, pretty easy to step into. The cues are fun. Looking for places to use your cues, I think is really, really fun. I don't know how that would work if you are using a character that you generated yourself. But no, I definitely, as I was going, I was like, oh, I haven't used this cue. What would be a time for me to use this cue? And I thought that was super enjoyable. The playset, again, total success. Really quick, really easy, like, oh, there's a Saragasso in space. Go to it. You know, here are some objectives. Here are some cues and tags, both of which serve as ideas for the kinds of things you might see here. Here's a couple more, like, lines of dialogue about it. And here are three scenes. Ready, set, go. And no, all of that works great. So both the characters themselves and the actual story you're playing are really easy to get a handle on, which is something that I think a lot of these sort of vague storytelling e-games, wishy-washy sorts of beetle stuff, that's a struggle about those things. It's hard. I don't know that I've spent enough time being a witness for the prosecution, so in case I've been remiss in those duties, I'll pick them up again here for a moment. I think that the degree to which it is able to move through a plot that has you know, a beginning, a rising action, a climax, a falling action, that definitely is something it has going for it. 
But again, one of the things that I don't think it's able to pick up from the genre in which it wants to operate is a fully satisfying ability to do a plot that requires a central mystery. Again, we played Space Sargasso. It is very clear what that mystery is going to be. Ships are disappearing in a place. What's disappearing the ships? Go there, find out, solve it. And to its credit, I think that it tries to stay away from telling you what the answer to that question is. But, I don't know, maybe I'm totally off base here. This is something I feel like I could actually just be dead wrong about. One of the great things that GM'd systems have going for them is that going in, someone knows the answer to the mystery, if you're doing a mystery-like plot, and you, the players, can cast about and use your real human deductive faculties. No, I agree completely. In fact, we had that moment in the game itself where it came time to reveal what, like, the freaky hand situation was in the center of the Sargasso, and I had an idea, and I was ready to go forward with it, and I was the main narrator at that point, and you handed me a plot point being like, ah, I want to do the reveal. And we were like, oh, we both have ideas. And we were able to, like, both explain our ideas and decided that we liked one better than the other and we just agreed, like, oh, that's the one, let's go with it. But, like, that could have been a real conflict. Yeah, I don't think that that moment was equivalent to the way that a GM can reveal the grand plan or reveal, you know, the child being tortured in the omelas of the game world or... Yeah, not at all. And that moment where we both had an idea and you literally, like, wrested narrative control from me, that could have been really shitty. You know, like, what if we had both really liked our ideas and the system would just be like, no, Charles handed you a plot point. What if I liked my idea and no one else did? Yeah, that would Mm. suck. And, like, you know, I think that we're a really collaborative group. I think that... We all feel like our loyalty is to the story, and I think, generally speaking, we all recognize a really cool idea when we see one. So I don't think that we, as a group, very often have the problem where one person has an idea and another person has an idea, and there's an actual conflict there. Like, usually it's pretty easy to just be like, oh, idea A is actually the better one. Let's go with A. And everybody agrees, like, oh... A is better, even the person who came up with B. Yeah. But that is a wonderful function of our group that is in no way aided by the actual mechanics of this game. So, that all said, are we ready to move on to Final Judgment Season? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Do you, do you, do you think this game is for anyone? I had too much fun with this game not to want to recommend it, frankly. Especially because we've played a lot of storytelling games, and we've played a lot of storytelling games where the fluff was harder to grasp than this. The fact that at least the pre-generated characters are so strong, and the scenario are so strong, and the scenario all have like literal like step one, step two, step three, I think that's really, really good. This rulebook clocks in at what, like 140 pages or something? It's not a lot. And it feels like about 30 of it is basically just lore writing. Uh, like, no, it's more than that. It's like the first like, 50, 50, 60 pages. Is wow. Just okay, insane. fair enough. No, between examples of play and initial short story and a bunch of like background documentation for the world, like this is a lot of lore by volume relative to rules. And I think the lore, at the very least, does a very good job of conjuring up this like golden age sci-fi in quotes. Thing, that's what we ended up modeling. 
Yeah, we didn't write a plot that was like deeply invested in the specific lore as outlined in the first 50 pages of the rulebook, but I think we all looked through it and you sort of see what the keywords, phrases, terminology, and sort of general vibe of the place, and that combined with the characters and the scenario really points you in the right direction in a way that I think things like, say, the Forgotten Realm setting don't. Yeah, yeah. I think that's absolutely true. I have, I have a way better grasp on this than I have on Forgotten Realms, and that's totally weird because I have a strong grasp on, like, high fantasy worlds. But yeah, I cannot recommend this game in full because... I do not disagree that the mechanics are weird and often bad. You know, so if you're the kind of person who's like, oh, I really want to sit down and play the game according to all of its rules, then of course I cannot recommend this game to you. But the 2.0s for this game are easy and are beautiful, and you and your group can just read the rules and just be like, okay, yeah, we'd prefer to play this with a GM. Or, yeah, you know, we're going to house rule it so that you roll intuition in addition. Or we're going to change combat so it's less, like, overbearing. The worst combat system of all time. Oh, man, nah, dog. I have... No, I mean, it hits a perfect nadir between low-weight systems that are not about combat and therefore don't require much, like, rules lifting and fully formed tactical systems. Yeah, I guess I, as a player, just really dislike the fully formed tactical systems so much that even though this is the perfect Nadir and it's doing no thing well, I still don't want to do the D&D 4.0 situation like ever again. If you think that's bad, wait till you play Twilight 2000. I've never even heard of that. Uh, Twilight 2000 is a super crunchy post-nuclear war in the post-Cold War goes hot, military alternate history game. All of those things sound awesome, actually. It's the crunchiest game I've ever played and thought was genuinely really good. It's a shame you're going to ruin it all with crunch. Or, you know, you're not necessarily... Like, look, I, I would be willing to give it a try. I'd frankly be willing to give it a try. But I wouldn't be optimistic about my ability to enjoy it. It's the only game I've ever played where the entire group of players like sitting around for 90 minutes planning out the operation that they're about to do in minute detail on like a topographical map actually counts as role-playing. Yeah, that might be, you know, that might be your fetish and not mine. Mm-hmm. The more you're talking, the more I'm like, wait a second, this is Hugh. Well, no, so the thing is, it's literally in character since you are by default playing a platoon of like American GIs like kind of stuck behind Soviet lines. Hmm. So like it has a specific military tactical conceit. And so the fact that that's the game you play and the fact that you play like, wow, these are really complicated wargaming rules to resolve all your combats is by design and exactly for the player who thinks that's not a flaw. Anyway, this entire section can probably be omitted from the podcast. <laughs> I don't like Europa Universalis. It's a good game. This will be its own mini-set about Twilight 2000. <laughs> yeah, so that that's my opinion, is that, like, I absolutely will recommend this game to story gamers willing to tweak it. I mean, frankly, I would play this game again with tweaks in a heartbeat any time that I wanted, like, space-sparing, zap-gun nonsense fun. The mechanical rules have nothing going for them. I just can't. I don't think I can see my way through to recommending a game that has that as one of its downsides. And I can't see my way to not recommending a game. That uh, you have as much fun with, yeah. No, no, whose sort of, like, world-building is so strong. Because, like, I don't know, it feels to me like mechanics 
you can adjust, you can house rule, you can alter. Like, really good flavor and really good world building that is really accessible and easy to get into is just so much harder to come by. Yeah, no, I think I take kind of the middle ground here between you two, where even having listened to this podcast, I think it's possible, and this depends on your group, that you might be able to put together some kind of story game or take a different story game and put this setting into it and get a similar experience to what we had without buying Cosmic Patrol, which ultimately I would come down on the side of being maybe not a great game when taking its entirety. That said, I don't know how much this little book is. It's 25 bucks. 25 bucks? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not here to judge book, your... It's a really, a really cute, cute, cute book. book. I'm not here to judge anyone's wallets. 25 is more than I would pay for it. I'm cheap, though. There is really cute stuff in there, and, like, if I saw it on sale, I might pick it up if I hadn't already played it, and then, you know, you can make some fun stuff out of it. I think I would take a slightly different middle ground than Wednesday, which is that... While I agree with Charles that this game is mechanically rubbish, I can't recommend this game. However, there are some things this game gets right in a way that I haven't seen a lot of other games do, and that's why I wanted us to play it for this podcast. But a story game with enough structure that it makes it harder to fail on the basis of unsatisfying ending or on the basis of sort of a lack of player creativity. If you approach this merely as a writing exercise in which you're going to work in as many of the cues and tags and descriptions of the scenario and of your characters into the session as you could, you'd come out with a pretty good game. That is fundamentally a pretty well-crafted and well-thought-out piece of tabletop gaming. The slightly jammed but not quite system is good. This game is attempting to do something that in the end I think Fate does better, but have that kind of middle ground that actually synthesizes the things that are cool about story games and the things that are cool about traditional GM'd tabletop role-playing games in a system where the responsibility of providing surprises and twists is shared rather than concentrated in one player and where there's room for overcoming obstacles that with a sense of uncertainty which is what having skill checks and dice rolls provides while still having a very freeform game is something that i really want in my tabletop games there is a sense in which this is a failed version of my ideal game and so that's a middle ground yes it's not a glowing recommendation. It's not a full-throated condemnation. I think you could find it in your heart to love this game, or you could find it in your heart to read this book and like start thinking about how to make a better one. This game is a buffalo corpse rotting in the sun. But by that, I mean that it is fit prey for a certain variety of scavenger animal. It's a majestic animal <laughs> fundamentally compromised by some structural flaws. And maggots. Interestingly, a lack of a heart, not one of them. (laughs) That was the perfect metaphor, it turns out. We were the buffalo all along. (laughs) Does anyone have pressing primes? I sort of have a weird prime. Okay. This might be a prime less for this game and more for many games, but it occurred to me as we were playing, like, okay, so now we are in the heart of a derelict and we've discovered that there are hands in here. So we're sort of, like, playing a different game now and a different genre, 
So we should whip out the Jenga tower and finish this dread style. <laughs> or, like, you could also play this game and you could end up in a very, very silly place and you could finish it fiasco style. Like, I don't know. I think that a variety of 2.0 that I'm wanting to think about right now, that because of the variable nature of the, the sci-fi at play here, seems to fit very well with Cosmic Patrol, is just, like, the sort of genre-switching and therefore mechanics switching game. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. I can say that. Yeah, so uh, we'll stay on patrol for interesting role-playing games. See you yeah. next episode. Let the record show that I have a pretty good 2.0 for this game, but I'm saving those ideas. You can buy them from me. <laughs> <laughs> Soon to drive through RPG if or RPG Now or something. Extreme Claw? Razor Claw. Laser drill. Laser drill. Laser drill. Razor claw. Laser drill. Razor claw. Laser drill. We never explained this. No, we didn't. I'm so glad. Another public service announcement from Brill Cream. Men, beware. Use one dab of Brill Cream. Just a little dab makes your hair look excitingly clean, disturbingly healthy. This man dared to use two dabs. Now he's in trouble. We refuse to be responsible. Brill cream, brill cream, brill cream, brill cream, a little dab will do ya. Brill cream, you look so better there. Brill cream, the gals will all pursue ya. They'll up to get their fingers in your hair. Thank you for listening to Parallel Lives. If you want to find the show online, we're at parallelurl.com, parallelpodcasts at gmail.com, or the Parallel Lives Tabletop Podcast on Facebook. This episode is due to be released on the day after my birthday. So, uh, if you want to give me a nice gift, why not review us on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher Radio? Really, really, I'd love it. You can find Cosmic Patrol online at CosmicPatrol.com. If you'd like to find any of us on Twitter, the podcast is at Parallel Chat. I am at Wednesday Quest. Hugh is at Ionic Blather. Carrie is at Baroque Emotions. And Charles is at Gush4U, with the number 4 and the letter U. This episode was produced by me, with clips from X-1 and... Neon Genesis Evangelion. Next week, can it really be true? Check back for a special design discussion on how we would make a role-playing game out of a certain popular piece of Japanese animation. That episode comes in at about 45 minutes long. See you then! Wednesday is like, please let me log for science, <laughs> fellow podcast friends. There's all my prolarc feels to be out there.